Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. In America, gun violence is now the number one killer of children. For decades, since the mass shooting at Columbine High School in Colorado, schools across the country have conducted active shooter drills in hopes of preparing students and teachers for a possible firearm attack. A majority of states now require schools to have these drills, and more than 95% hold them on a regular basis. But there's little research into whether these active shooter drills in schools are effective or whether they may in fact be causing harm to kids. You know, your brain does not know the difference between a drill and an active shooter in your building because the sounds are scary. There's banging, there's yelling, there's screaming. There are some drills where people are dressed in combat outfits and they're pointing guns at people and there's blood on their clothing and they really go all out. Today on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine, school shooter drills. What do we really know about them? We start our story with two sisters, both have experience with active shooter drills in schools and share a legacy of gun violence. My name is Robin Kogan. I have been a nurse for 40 years. For the last 23 years, I have been a school nurse, primarily with elementary school in Southern New Jersey. My father is really the impetus for me. He was involved in what was to be considered the first mass shooting in the United States. Back in 1949, he lived with his mother, his father, his grandmother. My grandfather was a pharmacist. They lived behind the pharmacy. One of their neighbors had recently come back from World War II with weapons, and he had a list of grievances against his neighbors. The morning of the murders, he killed 13 people. Three of them were my father's family. My dad was 12 years old when he became an orphan. For the last years of his life, my father was very active with the work that the Brady Foundation did to stop weapons of mass destruction the ban on the assault rifles, which unfortunately was overturned like 10 years later. And then I get a call from my sister on February 14th, 2018, saying that there was an active shooter at Parkland High School, Marjorie Stillman Douglas High School, and my niece was hiding in a closet at school. My father survived because he hid in a closet. I just remember being on the phone with my sister for hours. We knew Carly was okay. She was texting. She was just waiting to be released by the police. But yet she's standing next to a mom who's not heard from her child. And my sister kept saying, what do I say to her? And of course, you know, later that night, we found out her child was one of the victims. And I re just remember so vividly talking to her that night, talking to, to my family and saying, I, I have to do everything I can in my power as a school nurse, as a public health person, as a family member of survivors and victims to stop this. This, this is a public health crisis. We do absolutely need to prepare kids to respond to gun violence. 
we don't need to do it in these hyper-realistic, super intense ways. There's banging, there's yelling, there's screaming. There are some drills where people are dressed in combat outfits and they're pointing guns at people and there's blood on their clothing and they really go all out. School should be a safe space. We have taken that away, making it a really scary place to be. You know, what's the lowest hanging fruit here? All of the unlocked and loaded guns laying around in kids' homes, in the back of cars, in a glove compartment, in a bedroom drawer. 70% of kids who are the school shooters get these guns from home. Let's get them out of circulation. They don't have to be taken away, but can you lock them up? You know, when you can have laws that you don't need a license, you don't need to register your gun, you can open carry, you can buy unlimited ammunition, you can have a weapon of mass destruction at a very young age. These are recipes for the tragedies that we're seeing. We can talk about school safety. We can do tabletop drills. We can talk about bigger issues like school belongingness, school connectedness. We can create safety nets for kids who are really outliers who are having difficulty or are going through a crisis. We can make sure that students who have concerning behaviors are identified. You know, we cannot traumatize our kids to try to keep them safe because that trauma continues throughout their life. My name is Mary Novell. I was a teacher for about 25 years. We raised our family in Parkland, Florida, and both of my children grew up going to the Parkland schools. In 2018, on February 14th, I was teaching at Broward Elementary School, about 10 miles from Stoneman Douglas High School when my daughter texted me and told me that she was hiding in a closet in her journalism classroom while she thought an active shooter was on campus and it was a real event, it wasn't a drill. And all of a sudden I said, what am I doing? I gotta go. And I started driving towards the school. And it, it was so surreal for me because I had had this fear my whole life that something tragic was gonna happen. My father was in the first mass murder in the country. So I had lived with a fear and trauma that something would happen to my children my whole life. When I got to the corner, I ran into one of my closest friend's daughters who was a freshman and she kind of fell into my arms sobbing. And she said she just saw her best friend get shot in the face. And during all of this time, my daughter was texting me and saying, I'm still in the closet. And I was just asking her if she was okay, if she had heard from other people. I asked about one particular girl that she had grown up with because I was standing with her mother and her mother's like, have you heard from Meadow? I, I haven't heard from Meadow. So I said to Carly, do you know anything about Meadow Pollock? And Carly didn't know. And I said, can you ask around? Her mother hasn't heard from her. Nobody knew anything. So when we finally did reunite that evening, and I don't think it was until about three or four in the morning that I got a text 
from Meadow's aunt that she had been killed. In 1949, my father was 12 years old and he was living in Camden, New Jersey. And he looked out the window and he said to his mom that Junior had just shot and killed the insurance guy. And his mom said, hide Charles, hide. And my dad hid in a closet. And this shooter killed my grandparents that day and my great grandma. I was raised with a man that was incredibly fearful of something tragic happening to his family. He was very worried about our safety all the time. And as a young child, I was always thinking about places to hide if somebody was going to come and get me. And I carried that trauma with me as an adult and unfortunately passed that onto my family. So we would go out and say we had to stop for gas and maybe the kids wanted some snacks and I would get freaked out in the gas station and I would make everybody flee and go back to the car. And it became a joke with my family, unfortunately, a sick joke, but mom thinks something's going down. We have to go anywhere we went. I was looking out for an exit, uh, especially having young children. So prior to 2018 and Stoneman Douglas shooting, we had drills probably once a quarter. We were trained with certain color codes and they would give a code via a loudspeaker. So they would say code yellow. Code yellow would basically mean that there might be something going on in the neighborhood, but not necessarily in the school area. A code red would mean complete lockdown, and we would have to go right into a safe place and barricade our doors and that there was actually an active shooter on site. So I would explain to them for code yellow, we were going to stay quiet and turn off the lights and sort of get low so that nobody would see us. Maybe we'd sit on the carpet. And if we had a code red and you had students in the bathroom, they would not be able to go back into my room. You have to leave them in the hallway. You're not allowed to open the doors. So they would sort of get stuck When we went into the closet, there were some students that were incredibly scared. We were all on the ground, on the floor, and I would sit with them with my arms around them, sort of keeping them feeling safe, and I would assure them that we were okay. So after the shooting in Parkland, we had to have more shooting drills. At least once a month, we had a drill. And they were more serious. So you would have the fire alarm on and be in the closet on a code red, knowing you're not allowed to leave your closet. They would have the police come by, let me in. It's the police. You're not supposed to ever open a door for anyone during a code red. My students and I would be hiding. And some of them were very scared because even though they were young, 
they knew what happened at Stoneman Douglas High School. Because of guns availability in our society, I think it makes it sort of a necessary evil that we do some drills. I do think that the students need to know what to do. They need to practice it. They need to understand it. The teachers need to understand it. But there's no social services to help people that are experiencing trauma from these drills. They might be necessary, but they need to follow it up with some more resources and help. I felt that there was a disconnect because after the drill was over, it was like, okay, everything's fine. In fact, they would have a code word and the code word at our school was Happy New Year. After you heard Happy New Year, you could leave your classroom and you were supposed to go back as business as usual and start teaching. And students were supposed to start learning. There was no conversation about how are we doing right now? Let's have a check-in. These drills were made by security or police officers, but they're not incorporating that social emotional piece. I always felt like there was something wrong that I was so fearful about the bad guys coming and where to hide. And now everybody's finding a place to hide. I guess that's just become our life in America now. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. We're now joined by Dr. Cornelia Griggs. She's a pediatric trauma surgeon and education director of the Center for Gun Violence Prevention at Massachusetts General Hospital. And also David Reedman. He's a data scientist and founder of the K-12 School Shooting Database. David Reedman, I'd like to start with you. You were working as a consultant for Homeland Security and then began doing research into school shootings. Why? I was at the Naval Postgraduate School in 2018, working on a Homeland Security think tank project. And in the midst of that program, thinking about the future threats to our country, the Parkland shooting happened. My background was working on terrorism and intelligence investigations. And we have very clear checklists and procedures for how to identify somebody that may be going down the road to commit a terrorist attack. And it seemed like a similar framework could easily be applied to preventing school shootings. And that's when I realized that there was no information about school shootings. And that took me down the path of gathering as much data as possible. There have been more than 2,400 different shootings at schools back to 1966. It is now an American issue. Dr. Cornelia Griggs, I'd like to turn to you now. You have lived experience with this in your day-to-day clinical work. Tell us how you got into gun violence prevention research. I'm a pediatric surgeon, and I got sick of taking care of kids who were getting injured by bullet wounds. And 
began to feel that as a physician and as a parent and a human, I had an obligation to work on prevention, not just treating traumatic injuries. Then I wrote an op-ed with my partner, Peter Masiakos, and I told the story of how heartbreaking it is to look a mother in the eye and tell her that we did everything, but we could not save the life of her child who was unnecessarily killed by gun violence. And that struck a really strong chord with the medical community that felt really helpless as a collective. When we first started talking about doing gun violence prevention research at MGH, there were very few government-funded grants that even acknowledged gun violence as a public health issue. And I think normalizing this conversation in the context of healthcare was a big paradigm shift because when we know that something is the number one killer of children in the United States, we need to activate the healthcare community. David Reedman, can you explain the Dickey Amendment that essentially banned federal funding of gun prevention research because it would impact gun sales? In 1996, the Dickey Amendment essentially prevented the CDC from using any of its funding for anything that related to gun violence research. We never built the research institutions that would be studying all of the aspects of this problem, from systemic gun violence to suicides to intimate uh, partner violence to mass shootings in schools. There would be research institutions that would have carved out niches and would be gathering this information. But in this one, the lack of information is so stark that we end up making public policy decisions based on assumptions rather than data. So thinking about this process of uncovering these shootings, last March, I saw a Google alert for somebody killed at a school. And there was very little information, but in the picture on the article, there was a picture of the coroner's van. So I knew that something had happened at this small middle school in rural Indiana. I finally found a community message board, and there were people talking about how this person was their favorite teacher. They can't believe this would happen. I couldn't find any other information. So on Monday morning, I called, and the woman at the front desk told me that a seventh grade teacher had killed himself in front of the class. So a suicide by a teacher with a firearm in front of a class would never be reported anywhere in the same state and the same region that is talking about arming teachers. So without data, we make very poor public health decisions and public policy decisions. But when you look at these cases in aggregate, you see patterns And we can develop interventions. And that's what the medical community has done successfully for just about every other problem. So you were saying that we're making policy decisions without data. Let's talk about what you've seen on on the evolution of these school active shooting drills. I didn't start this project until 2018. And in 2018, there was no empirical evidence on the characteristics of shootings in schools. There was no good data available to analyze anything. Yet, 20 years before Parkland, 1999, when Columbine happened, it spurred 
a school security industry, and it spurred the early lockdown procedures in schools. There was never a peer-reviewed study to find out if this is the best action to take. School shooting drills have really been built around a narrative, an image, a fantasy of this deranged outsider coming into the school and determined to get into every classroom. And in each classroom, they're going to kill as many people as possible in the room. And that was really built out of Sandy Hook. And Sandy Hook was this incredibly tragic shooting, but it was a very uncommon circumstance. And in every single public space, whether it's a shooting or a fire or a gas leak or a train crash, we tell people, get away by every means possible. But somehow, without any evidence behind it, students are being told, sit quietly in your classroom, even though danger is here, even though somebody is coming here specifically for you. And that decision has never been based on any evidence. Overwhelmingly, across 60 years of school shootings, they are almost all committed by a current or former student at that school who knows the plan knows where students are going to go, knows the layout of the building, when the shooter knows the drill and knows where the students are going to be, you can have a situation like Uvalde. Somebody who's familiar with the school can plan an attack, and they know that when the first shot is fired, this is exactly what everyone will do. And if they get into one classroom, all of those students will be waiting there. And in Uvalde, that was tragic because... If those students had run, some of them may have been killed, but it would not have been as bad as it would be staying in the classroom for more than 70 minutes watching your classmates bleed out. So Cornelia Griggs, you're focusing on the schools now. Tell us what you're trying to do and what you're finding out about these active shooter drills in schools. We started with trainings to equip clinicians with language to talk to their patients about firearm safety and safe storage and gun violence prevention more generally. And when we started to think about how we could get that kind of curriculum into schools, we immediately jumped to the idea of working with school nurses. And nurses are telling us that they are walking away from situations where there are hyper-realistic active shooter drills, and they themselves are traumatized by the experience, and they are watching the children be traumatized by the experience. They are telling us that they see preschool-aged children go home and tell their parents that there was a shooter at school today. And they are telling us in some situations that they feel a gun violence incident at their school, if it hasn't already happened yet, feels inevitable. And there is a lot of concern about the long-term and harmful psychological effects of hyper-realistic active shooter drills, and that they are in many instances likely to be much more harmful in the long-term than helpful in any kind of realistic scenario. And I think we need to understand what works before we widely implement something without understanding the long-term consequences. So, David Reedman, do you think we should have these drills? How prevalent are they? 
and what do you see that's needed? One of the first things to do with any school security plan is look at prior incidents and say, how many times would this have been helpful? So last year, there were 305 different shootings at a school. Two of them were deliberate attacks. The other 303 were a time when a gun was fired. And in that moment, students hear gunshots, teachers hear gunshots, the school goes into lockdown, usually for hours, for three, four, five, six hours. And because everyone heard that gunshot, they think that it is the real thing. They're texting their parents, I love you, goodbye. But in reality, what we can see from data is that the most common situation to happen at a school is a fight that escalates. There are more teenagers carrying weapons than there have been at previous points in history. And when there's a conflict, these conflicts are turning into shootings. And the shooter almost always runs immediately. So there's no threat at the school anymore. But we only have one plan for when a shot is fired, and that's lockdown. On the other end, when there is a deliberate attack, there have been 230 of those since 1966. They don't all happen in the classroom. But because Sandy Hook was a shooting in the classroom, everybody gravitated towards every shooting being a shooting in the classroom. And so we've created a plan around one scenario. In fact, we have a much more complex landscape of different scenarios. And if you look at each one in detail, getting away from the school, getting as many people away from the school as fast as possible is almost always the best thing that you can do. So Cornelia Griggs, what's wrong with this lockdown mentality or what David Reedman is saying? The nurses that we spoke to as part of my research expressed over and over again that there is a mental health crisis unfolding for young people and that we are ignoring the fundamental drivers of gun violence. And when there is a gun violence incident in a school, that what these children want and what they need is their community, and they need to feel held and supported by their community. And when you put something in place in schools that feels perfunctory and ineffectual, you are likely causing more damage for the people who are going to school in that building or working in that building than you are alleviating any sense of fear. So what are you trying to do in these schools the nurses that we have surveyed, what we have learned is that gun violence is at the top of their minds in terms of being a concern for their students and their daily lives in school. And the goal of our work is to train them to feel empowered to have these conversations in schools, to talk to parents, families, and students about firearm safety counseling, safe storage, gun violence prevention in the community that we can change the conversation and we can take them from a place of feeling like sitting ducks who are showing up to school every day just waiting for an active shooter to enter their school. And school nurses are the perfect people to deliver this message for students and families because they are trusted members of the community and they're a friendly face that the students see every day that they come to 
when they are hurt and injured. And they're often the first call to parents when a child is suffering from any kind of ailment, whether it's a headache or whether it's coming to the school nurse because they are afraid that they have a family member who is depressed and dangerous and has access to a loaded weapon. Or there's a very young child who shows up in the nurse's office for an otherwise common complaint and is sharing a picture of themselves holding a loaded weapon. There are some schools where that has become a matter of routine, children showing up with pictures of themselves holding a loaded gun. Can you speak to how you're trying to change culture by bringing this out into the open? Decades ago, it was taboo to talk about your sexual orientation. It was taboo to talk about alcoholism or drugs. And the cultural narrative around a lot of those topics has changed dramatically. We need to normalize having conversations about safe firearm storage in any number of clinical scenarios, whether it's an OB visit, whether it's a regular well-child visit in pediatrics, whether you are taking care of an elderly person with dementia. It is not part of our routine to ask about access to a loaded weapon, but we are asking them about how many fruits and vegetables they're eating, and we're ignoring the number one killer of children. And the more we normalize that conversation in a healthcare setting, the more we can start to have common sense solutions to gun violence in the United States. David Reedman, where do you see some of the solutions here? The way that we're going to find solutions to this problem is through empirical evidence and basing public policy on data, not on assumptions. School security industry has been built around ideas of what might happen. We have never looked in depth for the root causes of this problem, the downstream solutions, and whether the things that are being done are helpful or harmful. And until we take a close look at this issue to ask, are we doing the best thing for the kids in this classroom? And if people aren't sure that that answer is yes, then we need to find a better solution for them. Thank you both so very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. That's David Reedman. He's a data scientist and founder of the K-12 School Shooting Database, and also Dr. Cornelia Griggs. She's a pediatric surgeon and education director at the Center for Gun Violence Prevention at Massachusetts General Hospital. We had help from producer Dr. Julie Barzillay and from our managing editor, Deborah Molina. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. Next time, long COVID. Do we have an understanding of what it is? I'm just tired all the time and I feel as if I'm sick every day. I have an ongoing cough. I have tachycardia and palpitations. I have gastric pain and distress. I have still have some brain fog. And it's really sad and discouraging to have this thing kind of hit me and then have it totally change your life. That's next time on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum.